For those of you who might not know, my name's Luke. I get the privilege of working with our young adults. I get the privilege of opening the word and sharing what I think God has for us. And so if you've been with us this fall, you'll, you'll remember that we're going through a series called Continuum. It's all about ways we can incrementally grow in our walk with Jesus. So, so far we've covered relationships, we've covered intimacy with Christ, uh, with Pastor Caitlin, uh, we've covered finances with soon-to-be Pastor Scott, um, and that was great. And for tonight, and for two weeks from now, our Interact Night, we're going to be exploring mental health and its intersection with our faith. I just want to be honest up front with you that this is not an easy topic to preach on. This isn't an easy topic to uh, expound on and share about, and for a couple of reasons. I think the first one is that, honestly, it's, it's really outside of my area of study. I'm a pastor, and I've taken a number of pastoral counseling classes at uh, undergraduate, graduate levels. I've read many books, and I've talked to even more people about mental health, but really and truly, I'm not, I'm not an expert on it. And also, I want to be honest and upfront, I've never personally struggled with, with really severe mental uh, health or illness, and so it's hard for me to relate. But I believe that God has given us direction, and God speaks about it in the Bible, and I think that it's important to unpack some of these issues um, for, for a couple of reasons. The first is really to just destigmatize mental health in church. I think, it's, I think it's important that we create a community of supportive and understanding people that can come around one another and love one another in the same way that we would love someone if they were struggling with a, a physical ailment. And so tonight we're going to be exploring the story of a man who struggled with depression, and we're going to pull out some key points. Our story tonight is found in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, and it's the story of a man named Elijah. And for those of you who maybe don't know who Elijah is, that's okay. You're going to get a little bit more acquainted with him tonight. The first thing you need to know is he was a prophet. He was a man commissioned by God to speak on God's behalf to the people of Israel. But before we kind of dive into the story of Elijah, I want to just back it up a little bit and give you a little bit of historical context so maybe you can understand where we're coming from tonight. Um, the, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings is where we find the story of Elijah, and it's in the Old Testament. And what it is, it contains the narrative, the story of the kings of the divided Holy Land. In the north was Israel. Uh, and in the south was Judah. Sometimes in church we hear about Judah, we hear about Israel, and it's just kind of nice to get a, a, a picture of, of what we're talking about. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was found in the southern land of Judah. Sometimes we think of Jerusalem and think of Israel, but actually in, in this part of the Bible, Jerusalem is in Judah. And the Sea of Galilee, another, another sea, another place we hear a lot about, was actually in the north. Uh, it was the kingdom of Israel. Now, before the split, the kingdom was united as one Israel under the reign of King Solomon. And if you know anything about Solomon, he was the wisest king in all of history. But shortly after Solomon came, a king named Rehoboam, who had the opportunity to rule this wonderful kingdom of Israel with the same compassion, love, and care that Solomon did. But instead, he listened to his young friends, and he chose to attempt to rule with an iron fist. And stuff went completely sideways for him. The people rebelled and the kingdom split. 
ten tribes went north and became what we now know, or what we know of Israel in this book. And that was actually ruled by a guy named Jeroboam. They could have picked names that were a little bit more different. But Jeroboam's in the north, Rehoboam stays in the south with uh, the two tribes of Benjamin and, uh, what was the other one? Judah. Judah and Benjamin make up Judah. And so they're down there, and they're ruled by Rehoboam. And these two Old Testament books serve as, the, as both historical documents, uh, and they contain the, the timeline of kings, both godly and evil. But also, and this is more important, the books of First and Second Kings contrast the lives of those who would live for God and those who would refuse to do so. And so in light of all of this, all of this turmoil that's happening, God sends a man named Elijah right into the middle of it. And at this point, uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, a king named Ahab is ruling. And so Elijah goes to Ahab. And just so you know, the northern kingdom since the split had never had a good king. It had been evil king after evil king after evil king. It was a long history of bad decisions and drifting away from God. So when Elijah shows up on the scene, Israel is in some real hot water. So Elijah walked into the presence of King Ahab. Believing that God had sent him there, and he declares that there was going to be a, uh, a drought. Now, now, the gods at the time that the people were worshipping were not the one true God of Israel. So the king was worshipping a god named Baal. Now, if you know anything about Baal, you'll know that, that he was the god of rain, and he like physical rain. And, and he was also kind of like the main god that they worshipped. And so when Elijah came into Ahab's courts, and he declared that there was going to be a drought, he most certainly would have known that Ahab would have been perturbed. This wouldn't have been news that Ahab had wanted to hear. And so Elijah goes with boldness before Ahab and challenges him, challenges him and his 450 prophets of Baal, this, this false god. And he says, I challenge you to a contest, come with me. And if you want to read the story, uh, go home tonight and check out 1 Kings uh, 18. And let me tell you, it is an epic showdown. Um, if you want to fall in love with the Old Testament again, I mean, this is a great place to start. I mean, it is literal fire. It is awesome. Long story short, we'll kind of cut to the chase here. Elijah makes a fool of these prophets. And the one true God of Israel truly lays a licking on Baal. Uh, Elijah basically tells the prophets, he says, cut up a bull, put it on the altar, and then pray to your god Baal to, to come and burn up this offering. And so the, the prophets of Baal do everything they can. They cut themselves, they shout into the heavens, they danced around, they worked themselves up into a ladder, they did everything they could think of, and nothing happened. The bull stayed on the altar unburnt. <laughs> And there are certain times in the Bible that I read about people, and I realize that I could have been in the Bible. Not for, like, really good reasons. Because Elijah, while this is all happening, he has the audacity to suggest that maybe Baal was in the bathroom relieving himself. And I read that, and I was like, I get that. I could have been friends with Elijah. And so Elijah's being, like, incredibly bold. He's standing in the presence of the power of God, and he's, he's making fun of them. He's saying, like, go oh, do it. Make it happen. And then Elijah says something even more incredible. It's, it's his turn. 
So, so he has his bowl cut up and placed on the altar. And then to take it one step further, he says to the people, go, get, get water, bring huge. And the Bible says four big, huge jars, I mean, massive things, and douse it with, douse it with water. Get everything soaking wet and drenched and dripping. And then Elijah stands back and he prays a simple prayer. And fire from heaven comes down and burns everything to a crisp. God literally lights it up. And Elijah stands in victory. And then, and then he takes it one step further. And this is where I'm like, Elijah, you lost me here. We could be pals, but then he takes it too far. He takes those 450 prophets down to the Kishon Valley and he, he kills them all. There was the line. Kind of. Whatever. It's, it's crazy stuff. It's Old Testament stuff. And I love it. And I love it for two reasons. The first is that it shows off the power and the glory and the grandeur of God in about the most awesome way possible. Fire descends from the sky and scorches everything. And there's a sermon there about the power that we have and the access we have to God's power today. But that's not where we're going tonight. Because the second part of the story that I love so much, it sets the stage to showcase the fragility of humankind. And for our purposes tonight, we're going to focus on that second point. We're going to focus on what it means to be fragile, broken human beings. And I think it's safe to say that if anyone can truly stand in the power and presence of God, it was Elijah. I mean, he stood up against the king. He stood up against 450 prophets. And I mean, these weren't prophets like lame, like pastors today. I mean, these were prophets. These guys were bad men. Like, they made stuff happen. And he stood in front of them, and, and he boldly proclaimed who God was. But what's amazing is right after this, Elijah's not quite the man that we just saw. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 19, and we're going to read a little bit of uh, a little bit of scripture here. So, so follow along with me. It's on screen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is right after everything just went down with the prophets. It says, when Ahab got home, so the king, he got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. See, I told you he went too far. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if this, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you have killed them. Elijah was afraid for probably good reason, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. Now remember, Judah was south of Israel. So he, he left the country, man. He was fleeing. He was, getting, he was out of town. And he left his servant there in Beersheba. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. The broom tree was just a juniper tree. But as he was sleeping... An angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. 
So, so he got up and ate, drank. The food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And we're going to stop there tonight because I think, I think we need to focus on this portion of Scripture just a little bit. What an incredible change. Literally, just before this, Elijah was standing in one of the most triumphant and awe-inspiring victories of God in all of scriptural history. And now, he's lying under a tree, wishing he was dead. Elijah went from the highest high imaginable to the darkest depth. Literally praying, actually asking God. And this is not just some, uh, you know, you know, flighty prayer. I mean, this was him earnestly seeking to God, literally take his life from him. And shortly after this, Elijah insists that he's all alone. He claims he's bearing too much weight and that he'd rather be dead than live this life. And so I ask you tonight: Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever believed that the world would honestly and truly be better without you? Have you ever believed that you were completely and truly alone, even in a room full of people? Have you ever believed that even though you have experienced the amazing hand of God in your life, that now it's all over and you'll never experience any goodness again? Well, let me tell you, friends, Elijah was right there. And scripture captures it so raw and real. And what's so interesting is that right after his prayer, right after Elijah says to God, take me, I don't want to live anymore. An angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Now that might not seem like much, but I want to unpack this a little bit. And there's a couple of really cool things happening here. The first, and this really is important, and this really kind of struck me as amazing as I was studying, was that the Hebrew word used for stones here is only used one other time in all of Scripture. Stones are talked about many times, but they're never used. The only other time that this particular word is used to describe stones is found in Isaiah 6, verse 6, where an angel of God, a seraph, takes a hot coal from the fire, and he touches the lips of Isaiah. In response to Isaiah expressing his unworthiness to live out the call of God on his life. And, and, and this is important because the writers, the writer of First Kings, I believe, would have undoubtedly been familiar with this passage. Isaiah was written about 150 years before First Kings, and I believe that that same imagery is used on purpose because it's used to frame this truth that Elijah felt unworthy for the call that God had placed on his life. And I know that there are people here tonight. That can relate to that feeling. We've been told over and over again since some of us have been in church since we were just we little ones. And we've been told over and over again that God has a plan and God has a purpose for our life. I've preached those sermons. But yet sometimes we can still feel unworthy of that call. And that's exactly where Elijah felt and found himself. That's exactly where Isaiah 
found himself. Standing in the presence of an almighty God, Elijah has just come out of one of the most amazing passages of scripture in the, in the Bible. And yet he still feels unworthy, even though he has seen God work. And the second bit from this, this passage of scripture that I find amazing is, is that it shows us that God gave Elijah things he actually physically needed. Sometimes it's easy to get hyper-spiritual about things. I've seen people struggling uh, with, with mental illness. Have people of faith tell them things like, just, just pray about it. Just pray it away. Things like, just bring your supplications to God and He will grant you the desires of your heart to deliver you from evil. Maybe you've been told things like that. Maybe you've said things like that. Or maybe you've been told that your struggles with mental health are because of your sin, or because of the sin of your parents, or of your grandparents. But I want you to hear tonight. I want you to hear that, that God can heal you. And God does heal people. But throughout Scripture, we see that God tends to the physical needs of people. It's not just about prayer. It's not just about faith. We see it in the story of the Good Samaritan where God comes alongside in Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, where he comes and he brings aid to a, a, a broken man who's been beaten up and hurt by robbers. He helps him physically. And then when Joseph in Genesis 45 gives generously to his family that did not deserve it, God works through Joseph to give literal food and things to keep them alive. Uh, in Matthew 14, we see the story of the little boy who brings his little lunch to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He feeds 5,000 people. He feeds them before he teaches them. And the Bible's full of these stories. And so, so you might be wondering, why are you saying this? I'm saying it because mental health is real. And it's physical. And because it's a physical ailment, sometimes it requires more than just spiritual medicine. You see, we're blessed to live in the 21st century, where we have access to modern medicine and technologies that can help us live better uh, and more productive lives, healthier. And I know sometimes that we get nostalgic about the old days. I do that too. But it's really hard to argue with the fact that, that, that we truly live in the best place and the best time in history. But, but yet we seem to be struggling more than ever with mental health. And you might say it's because of social media. Uh, you might say it's because science is just getting better and so we're able to diagnose at a, a faster rate than we ever did before. Maybe you're saying it's because of GMOs in our food. I don't know. But what I know is that whatever it is, it's impossible to ignore that people are struggling today. But I want you to hear that they struggled in biblical times as well. Sometimes we dissociate the Bible from our lives. And the Bible makes reference to many of the emotions that form the basis of struggles with mental health. Things like anxiety, anger, discord, jealousy, envy, lust, uh, dissension, narcissism, impatience, lack of self-control, idolatry, orgies, marital infidelity, gluttony, drunkenness, strife, lying, violence, and a host of other others. There are even biblical examples of suicide, including the deaths of Saul, who fell on his own sword, and Judas, who hanged himself. But despite the Bible being full of people who struggled with their mental health, 
sometimes it's treated as something that we just don't talk about. And it seems that we forget that it, it requires more than just prayer or faith to overcome. I think, I think more than often, we just, we just need real help. And then this tonight is where we find our way back to Elijah. Elijah was broken. He was hurting. And he was lost in his own mind. Elijah was struggling with depression. Yeah, someone who just made a threat against his life. But he had also just prayed to God, and God burnt up a bull in the most epic fashion possible. And somehow he managed to kill 450 prophets by himself. But yet one woman sends a death threat, and it throws him into this chaos? I actually don't think so. I think Elijah was struggling with depression. He appears to be totally worn out, totally fatigued, totally washed up and spit out. And this prophet who used to refer, refer to himself as one standing before the Lord seems to be sleeping a lot in this passage. He has to be woken up twice just to eat. He complains. He's suicidal. He needs to be forced to eat by the angel, food literally placed right in front of him. His view of reality is completely distorted. He's quick to blame others for the situation he finds himself in. And ultimately, he feels all alone. Now, knowing what we know about the rest of the, the Old Testament, we would expect that after this type of display, God would rebuke Elijah. That God would somehow, in his fashion, slap Elijah upside the head and say, take, take strength, take courage, I have you. But we don't. But we don't see that. What we see is that Elijah is given a series of experiences with God that reminds him that God is not done with him yet. God doesn't let him go simply because he's burnt out and is struggling with depression. And so I want you to hear tonight that in the same way, God isn't going to let you go just because you're struggling. He has just come from a gigantic victory. He had seen God move in a mighty way. And he could be certain that God had a plan for his life, yet he was curled up in the darkness, feeling unworthy, alone, and wishing he could just leave this world. And maybe you're here tonight, and you get that. Maybe it feels like I'm reading your mail. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're thinking, I've, I've been there. So somehow, somehow I got out. Maybe it was because someone came alongside me and loved me. Maybe it was because I sought counseling. Maybe it was because God somehow uh, just amazingly uh, rescued me from that situation. Or maybe tonight you're, you're sitting there like so many times in my life and you're thinking, wow, that sounds awful. And I hope I'm never there. Whatever the case, wherever you are tonight, I want to remind you, the psalmist in 139, writes that God created you in your inmost being. He knits you together in your mother's womb. And he declares you wonderfully and fearfully made. And so tonight I want you to hear this truth that you are not your struggles. You are not a mistake. You are not broken beyond repair. But maybe, just maybe, you can't fix yourself. 
And we see in Romans 8, verses, uh, verse 18, Paul says this, and I just I love it. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, God, God paints a picture for Paul. He points our gaze upwards. He points our gaze to this truth that there's two realities. There's this present suffering, this present struggle that we're enduring right now that's real. But then there's something greater to come. He says there's something beyond our current struggles. There's something beyond our pain, beyond our anguish, and beyond our deficiencies as human beings. There's something beyond your depression. There's something beyond your anxiety or your addiction. There's something beyond your narcissistic tendencies, uh, uh, your crippling fear, your battle with bipolar predispositions. There's something beyond your eating disorder or ADD or ADHD or schizophrenia or anything else that you're dealing with, whether diagnosed or not. There is something more than this life. And there is hope beyond our current suffering. And we have access to it only because of Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. And that's great. But what about now? What about right now? Because, Pastor Luke, listen to me. Uh, I'm not there yet. And I get that. That is a wonderful thing. And I believe wholeheartedly that one day we will enter into the kingdom. Where there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be no fear. But we're not there yet. We're here. So what about now? That's a great question. And I believe that just as God first gave Elijah food when he was hungry, I believe God has given us access to practical things that can help. And so tonight I'm just going to leave you with five things. Five things that I want you to consider if maybe you're struggling with mental health, if you're finding yourself in a dark place. The first, don't be afraid to ask for help. You see, God designed us to need each other. Uh, one of the first stories in the Bible is the story of Adam. And God created Adam, and his, and his first response to Adam was, wow, that's great, but alone, it sucks. And so God made Eve. Someone that could support Adam and someone whom, which, or whom uh, Adam could support. We were designed for one another. So when you're feeling stuck in your own head and you can't go for it, don't be afraid to reach out to a close friend or family member. Someone who you can trust. Talk to your pastor. If you attend a, a different church on Sundays or on weekends, talk to your pastor. They love you and they care for you. If this is where you call home, come talk to me. Come talk to someone else on staff. We love you. We don't want you to suffer. Just don't do it alone. We were created for community. So don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. It may be daunting. I get that. But it's absolutely worth it. And can I just say... That if, if you've asked for help and someone has been unwilling or doesn't seem to care, go ask someone else. Just because one person is insensitive or ignorant 
else. Doesn't mean that everyone is. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Second, counseling is not a last-ditch effort. I've seen so many people treat counseling as if it was a last stop, just the very brink before bailing on their marriage, on their kids, or on themselves. They'll do anything possible except go to counseling. But I want you to hear tonight that counseling is not a last-ditch effort. It's part of a balanced lifestyle. And, and just like you go for regular checkups on your body, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, Luke, I don't go for regular checkups for my body, I would say go do that. It's really important. You should plan to semi-regularly just get a... Uh, Morgan shared an article with me this week and it said just a, a checkup from the neck up. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. But seriously... Can we just agree right now? Can we just agree that, that, that tonight the counseling is not something to be ashamed of? Can we nod your heads? Can we just do that tonight? Because I tell you what, I've been to counseling. My wife's been to counseling. Many of our lead team members have been to counseling. I sit in the staff room and talk to our 13, 14, 15 other pastors, and almost every single one of them has been to counseling. Counseling's not something to be ashamed of. You might, you might think, oh, Luke, but then it means that something's wrong with me. There is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with all of us. Because the thing is, is that having the space to share deeply, uh, truthfully and vulnerably with someone is so important. It's someone who will keep your confidentiality. That is amazingly important. But what's even more important than that is going to someone who has the education, the ability, and the experience to actually help you. So please, don't let counseling be a last-ditch effort. And I just want to say right now that we, Elam Church, have a fantastic relationship with Christian Counseling Services. And so if, you are, if you're there, if you're here tonight and you feel like, yeah, maybe it's time I talk to somebody, and you don't know where to start, start there. Christian Counseling Services. Check them out. And guess what? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, Luke, that's wonderful, but I got no money, man. I'm a poor student. Um, come talk to me. We got ways. We got things. Because guess what? If you were bleeding out on the floor right here, and you came up and you were like, I don't have enough money, I'd be like, no, 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 you should have got insurance. <laughs> this is important. Hear me tonight. We want to help you. Third, exercise. Seriously. I've, I've bragged about my wife before, and I told you uh, about some of the things she's accomplished in her life, but I mean, she's an amazing wife, she's an amazing mom, uh, she's an amazing friend, but she's also an amazing athlete. Now, her current situation would, would, wouldn't like lend itself well to her top speed, but she is really fast when she's been pregnant. But Morgan, uh, after high school, she she attended Briarcrest for two years and played college ball. And after that, she she um, she came back to Saskatoon to go to the U of S to complete an education degree. And the first year back, she didn't compete in sports, and and that was probably the first time in, in her pretty much entire life that she hadn't been an athlete, and she was just a student. And you can ask her about it, but but she talks about how she was just not herself. Uh, 
you know, she was anxious, she was depressed, she felt completely worn out, she wasn't able to focus. And it wasn't until the following year, and then the subsequent year after that, that she joined the U.S. track team and she competed, she began to exercise regularly. And what a difference that made. Exercise is so important. Studies have shown time and time again that even the most minimal amount of exercise or movement releases endorphins and can substantially help you feel better. It's science. I mean, it doesn't take much. Go for a 30-minute walk. If that doesn't work, go for a 15-minute walk. Play a game. Join a rec league. Hit the weights and get super yoked. <laughs> Who's following my Instagram today? Somebody? <clears throat> Whatever works. Whatever works. Just get moving. Your body needs it and your mind will thank you for it. I promise you this. And fourth, and I think this is maybe my favorite. Stop believing the lie that you're unique. Before you freak out, hear me out. I think we often believe this little thing that we learned when we were a kid, that each of us are snowflakes. We're all so special, and we're all different. No two snowflakes are the same. Well, guess what? Every snowflake is a flake of snow. Think about that. Think about it for a second. Sure, they're shaped a little bit differently, but they share way more in common with each other than they have any differences. Each one is frozen water. Now look to the person sitting beside you. They say to them, we're the same snowflake. That person sitting beside you, you have more in common with them than you have differences. Right? You have more in common with the person sitting beside you than you have differences. Maybe their skin's a different color, maybe they come from a different part of the world, but they're a human being, they were made in God's image, and guess what? You're just like them. And, and so, so here's, here's what I'm getting at. I thought that was real clever, so... I just, I want to revel in that for a second. But, but here's what I'm getting at. You would be amazed at the amount of people in this room that have struggled with mental health. And, and, and I don't want you to hear that, that you shouldn't care about what you're dealing with just because everyone else deals with it too. Or a lot of people. That's not what I'm saying. I just mean that other people have been where you are. And if you're willing to open yourself up just a little tiny bit and dare to be vulnerable, I believe with my entire being, and that's a lot of being, that you'll be met with similar stories, support, and love, especially in this place. So just look around. You're all snowflakes. We're all struggling, right? And then believe that you were created for something more. God's design for you is not your struggle. You are not meant to be defined as fill in the blank. You are not meant to be defined as anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts 
You are not meant to be any of those things. You are defined as a child of God. And when you become one with your Savior, when you start to cling to that truth that there's more to this life than just your current or present struggles, you begin to take on the image of the one who created you. I'm going to ask some of our worship team to come back up tonight. And they're going to lead us in a couple of closing songs. And I'm also going to invite the prayer team and members of the lead team to come forward tonight. And just, just find your way out to the front of the stage here. And, and tonight, if you want to be prayed for, come on up. We would love the opportunity to pray for you and to pray with you. Because I think that the first place we need to go tonight is before the Father. And as you begin to take steps towards grappling with your mental health and remembering that you are not alone in this struggle, we would love the opportunity to pray with you. And remember tonight, remember to not, don't be afraid to ask for help. Seek counseling. Exercise. Remember that other people struggle too. And never forget that you were created for so much more than your current struggle. Amen? Please stand with us as we worship.